All right, let's dig in tonight. As we study the book of Revelation, I want to again restate my premise. My basic premise is that I'm not teaching Revelation from any eschatological position. I'm not saying you have to be a premillennialist. I'm not saying you have to be a amillennialist. What I'm trying to say is, and what I'm trying to do is to present it as I believe John intended it for his audience in their setting confronting the culture and the issues of the day. And so I'm just kind of just going through it verse by verse by verse, understanding that John was a brilliant um, Bible expositor of the Old Testament. Just in the four chapters or three chapters that we're going to kind of look at tonight, he alludes to the Old Testament almost 80 times, and depending on how you look at a few things, over 80 times. He, is, he, he goes from Daniel to Zechariah to the book of Leviticus to, to Haggai. I mean, he, Daniel, he is just everywhere. And so he is, a, he is an Old Testament scholar, and that was their Bible. Christianity is at best 50, 60 years old at this time. And so he is kind of the last guy standing. And so that kind of helps you understand. Now, I believe there's five elements to any eschatological view worth holding to. Whether you're a premillennialist or an amillennialist. Whether you're a pre-trib, post-trib, or all, all of the stuff in between. There's five things that the book of Revelation clearly teaches, without a doubt. And these are kind of the benchmarks that you have to go from one benchmark or milestone to the next and then work out the things that are in between. The redemptive work of Jesus Christ, obviously his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension, and his reign on the throne. The tribulation that increases with intensity and frequency as Christ returns near. And then the literal return of Jesus Christ... The, the coming judgment of all mankind, and then eternity, a literal heaven for the saved and a literal hell for those who do not believe. And so those five benchmarks are what you need to kind of keep your eye on as you move through the book of Revelation. Now, I've got to admit, I have, I have written two sermons today. Uh, I went home less than an hour ago to jump in the shower uh, because I, I've, I've, I've tried to look at one from the premillennial perspective, try to look at one from the amillennial perspective, and I'm telling you, if you do that throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, you will go crazy, all right? So again, my premise is I want to try to teach it the way I think John would have taught it, and, I, and that's a big premise, I understand, to his original audience with the issues that they were facing in that day so that we can learn from the truth that was applied to their congregation and extrapolate the principles for us today. Does that make sense? Now, with that said, I want to introduce you to Revelation chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. Four chapters. Seven judgments, four visions incorporate these chapters. I think, in my mind, these four chapters are the most discouraging, shocking, depressing um, terrifying. I mean, there is just horrible stuff in these four chapters. And as you study it, 
Man, it is easy to get bogged down in what every little thing means. And we're not going to do that tonight. We're going to kind of fly a little higher than that and keep the big picture in mind as we move from one benchmark that's on the screen to the next. All I'm simply saying is this is hard to read. In fact, if I had my choice, I wish these four chapters were not even in the Bible. These four chapters have been so misapplied, misquoted, misread. There are two cults that have just taken hold of this, these four chapters, and totally misrepresented them and have a cultic following uh, out of them. And there's probably more. And so open your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 8. Tonight it's my intent to cover the seven trumpet judgments and then four important images. And I really doubt if we get to those tonight but uh, inserted between the 6th and the 7th judgment. Now, this is one of those you got to have your Bible open. I hope you like your note sheet because, honestly, I was clueless on what to put down for you. So my prayer is the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and you write down what is important. Again, if you want a Bible verse that I didn't give you, kind of wave at me. If you want me to back up, just kind of back up. And that kind of thing. So this text, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, is full of disease, death, and destruction. The only hint of grace I see is found in two words. It's repeated over and over. And I'll see if you catch on or if you see where the slightest hint of grace is when we get there. So, by the way... Well, let's just jump into it. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was a silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. Now, why was there silence? There's two broad views. One view says there was silence to heighten dramatic effect. If you read through, and we will, the seven trumpet judgments that follow the seven seal judgments, I don't think they need dramatic effect. They are dramatic enough. When a third of the sun, the moon, and the stars and, and the day are all shortened by darkness by a third. When, when a mountain just explodes in its vol actual volcanic eruption and is just hurled into the sea and kills a third of the, of the oceanic marine life. That's pretty dramatic. When an army of 200 million is released, and if you put them in a column one mile wide, they would be 85 miles long. That's dramatic. And so some people think that this silence is for a dramatic effect. I rather lean towards the second position. And the second position is that God is giving, and again, numbers in the book of Revelation Sometimes they're literal. Most of the time they're symbolic. For, and we do the same thing with numbers, right? Lucky number. You say to your wife or your husband or to your children, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. And so we use literal numbers in a symbolic way. And maybe this is a symbolic way of allowing time for those who have just experienced the sixth seal or the sixth seal judgment to repent before Christ unveils and the trumpets blow on the seven trumpets judgments. 
So I personally, I think it's a time for repentance. I think it's a time for them to, to look. And so throughout heaven, for a space of a half an hour. And he said, I saw angels stand before God. And they were given seven trumpets. There were two types of trumpets in the Old Testament. One is called a menorah or a shofar. And it's kind of like a ram's horn. And that's kind of like old school traditional. One was a silver trumpet. You know, have you ever been to a soccer game where they have those long plastic things and they just blare them all the time? It's kind of the idea, except they were made out of silver. And trumpets were used for a variety of reasons. In Jewish history, they were used to summon nations, to rouse armies, to sound the charge, or to call people together for worship. Most of the time, it was used to announce a thing. It was just used as simply, hey, here we go, pay attention, something of tremendous importance is about to be said, pay attention. And so, there was the seven trumpets, and the angels, they stood before God, and they were given seven trumpets. And another angel with a golden incense burner came out and stood at the altar. This is clearly an allusion back to the Old Testament tabernacle and temple worship. Whereas you would climb the steps and enter in, there would be outer court and an inner court and, a, and an inner sanctuary and a holies of holies. And there would be a brazen altar. And, and there at the brazen altar, you would offer sacrifice. And the high priest at certain feast days would offer sacrifice. And incense always was associated with prayer. And particularly it was associated with either blessing as the sons of Aaron would pray in the morning and in the night offering incense up. Uh, as part of their duties, or it was given and offered in prayers of repentance. Because on the day of the atonement, the incense would go up, and on the day of the atonement, it was the high priest who stood between God and the people, praying for the remission of sin, and that the blood of the, the shed lamb, or the bull, would cover the sins of Israel and the nation and the people of God, and they would once again find favor with God. And so there's the angel who's holding the trumpet. There's another angel that comes forward. And a great amount of incense was given to him mixed with prayers of God's people and offering gold on a gold altar before the throne. And the smoke, by the way, let me just before I flip because I will not think of this anymore after this moment. This is out of the New Living Translation. Um, the, the New Living Translation is, is a thought-for-thought -thought translation of the Bible. Which is, which is fine, it's, it's good, it's, it's acceptable, it's accurate, it's true. But when you get to Revelation, it is a bit easier to read than the NASV or the ESV. And in my opinion, it's certainly a lot easier to read than the, in the King James. And there's a lot of scholarship behind it. But I like it because it's readable on a subject that is really hard to read. So, the smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people... Only those who know Christ as their Savior ascended up from God or to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. I don't have a clue how God stores up the prayers of the people. But we know from Revelation chapter 6 when the sealed judgments came out that on the fifth sealed judgment that prayers went up because the... the the martyred saints were under the altar and their blood cried out and the prayers rose up to God in heaven. Well, the angel filled with incense, threw it down upon the earth and thunder crashed with lightning, lightning flashes and there was a terrible earthquake. And it was then that the seven angels with the seven trumpets 
prepared to blow their mighty blasts. So verses 1 through 5 really take effect before the first trumpet blows. And so the first angel blows the trumpet. Now, by the way, as you read verse 6 and following, you really got to kind of land somewhere on how you're going to read it. Are you going to read it mostly symbolically, eclectically, as you know, some parts literal and some parts symbolic? Are you going to read it all literal or are you going to read it all symbolic? And I told you before in the introduction, I tend to read it all kind of in an eclectic manner, which most Bible scholars, and I definitely am not a Bible scholar, do. All right? So the first trumpet blows. And in John's day, they viewed nature in a fourfold manner. You know, we would say earth, wind, and fire, you know, from the 60s. They viewed nature, the totality of nature, the environment, in four Four kind of areas, the land, the sea, that would be the oceans, the fresh water, and heavenly bodies. And as you go through these four trumpets, you will see all of nature is affected. The land, the sea, the fresh water, and the stars, or the heavenly bodies, they're all affected by the judgments of the seven trumpets. The first four judgments seem to come, be directed at you know, nature and man is indirectly affected through the collateral damage of nature. But then you look at the next two judgments, trumpet judgments five and six, they're directed at mankind. And then the seventh judgment is a transition judgment going on to the bold judgments uh, that carry us through chapter 18. That's a lot. So the first trumpet sounds and there's a terrible storm of blazing brimstone mingled with hail and blood raining down from the sky. And a third of the earth, a third of the earth is scorched by forest and prairie fires. That is an alarming number. Out in California, it makes national news. Usually it's a lead story. When there is a forest fire and there's like 30,000 acres or 50,000 acres or 70,000 acres are on fire and it's uncontained. Here, a third of the earth is scorched. Prairie lands, forest, vegetation. You say, where does it happen? I don't know. Because I don't know where John's at. We had a church council meeting last night, and we kind of talked about this a little bit. I'm trying to figure out how John's seeing this thing. I don't know if he saw it in his mind. I don't know if he saw it like a screen right there. The problem with that is it's two-dimensional. And he seems to describe things in three-dimensional, and he seems to be able to smell the sulfur. You ever been to this uh, tiny little park in Florida called Disney World? And in Epcot Center, they have this, they have this theater, and it's a round building on the inside, and they have projectors shining everywhere so that you sit in the middle of it. Anybody been there? You sit, you're stand in the middle of it, and it's like any way you look, you are just surrounded, you know, engulfed in this vision. I don't know if that's how it was with John. Certainly, it seems he lived it vividly, and he would see it, and he would write it down. He would see it, he would hear, he would write it down. He would hear, and he would see it, and he would write it down. And so here's a third of the earth. Mixed with blood, they were thrown, the Bible says. And a third of the earth was set on fire. A third of the trees were burned and all of the green grass was burned. Now, I don't know how you get fire and hail. 
One needs heat and the other one needs cold. I don't know how those two come down together. Scripture says. Again, now, you got to decide, is that a literal kind of description or is it just symbolic that, hey, nature is just kind of going out of control? Is, is nature just kind of gone wild, so to speak? And that's just what you decide. So that's the first one. Boom, he blows the trumpet. Huge, huge storm of hail and blood and fire. Second trumpet blows, verse 8. And the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea, and one-third of the water in the sea, this is ocean life, became blood, and a third of all things, and, and living in the sea, died, and a third of all ships on the sea were destroyed. Let me just kind of unpack what I did this afternoon, because I really got wrapped up in this thing. And the danger of this is trying to take everything in its minute, minute detail. So I'm thinking, dude, this has to be a volcano, right? Mount St. Helens, you know, uh, Mount Vesuvius with Pompeii back in the day. I mean, this just has to be this huge eruption that just literally blows the top off of a mountain. Maybe it's in an island. Uh, maybe it's on the coast. But it blows that thing into the sea. Or it just blows it up and the hand of God just throws that thing over half a continent. We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. All we know is there's this huge explosion and the top of this mountain. In fact, it seems like the language invites us to see that it might be the whole mountain that goes into the ocean. And when it does, the damage is catastrophic. One third of the water turns to blood. Loss of Marine life, no more flounder, I love flounder, no more snapper, uh, only a third, but they die. And a third of all living things in the sea died, and a third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. So I kind of got to thinking, how does that work? Uh, where could a mountain go if, the, if this were to happen today, if this trumpet were to blow today? Where would the mountain blow up? Well, I started Googling stuff, and that's a dangerous thing to go crazy on the Internet, amen? I found out that there's anywhere from 10,000 to 12,000 ships on the ocean a day. Google the map. I tried to insert it in the, in the thing. It, it, it wasn't a good picture. It just looked like connect the dots. But it, it's just this map, and it's just ships everywhere. There's clusters around, but this is cruises. This is transport ships. This is military ships. This is fishing ships. And there's, I did not know this, but there's a category of pirate ships. Because piracy is still rampant, I found out today. And a third of all of those five categories, or a third of the total ships. If there's 12,000 out, and then if you take it literally, then you're saying, okay, then there's 4,000. Boom, destroyed. 4,000 ships gone. 4,000 and their crews lost. And then the third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch, probably a meteor, kind of what it sounds like. You can kind of see the tail of that thing. And it fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness, and it made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. So evidently, this, this meteor, 
if you're just trying to picture the event, where would it go if it's going to attack a third of the world's fresh water? Again, I started Googling. A dangerous thing. I found out that there's three places on the earth where 20% of the fresh water live or reside. There's the polar caps. Makes sense. There is this lake in Siberia called Lake Bamichael. And then it gets a little closer to home because it's the Great Lakes. Now, understand, it doesn't matter if it falls in Lake Superior. And I'm not saying it is. Ho, ho, ho. Everybody look at me. I am not saying it is. I'm just saying with the first three judgments, not only is there direct, the direct impact that you read, but there is collateral damage. If that thing explodes in Lake Erie, we are all dead. That, that, that thing will just, it, it will be equivalent to a nuclear explosion. And we know what happens. I mean, it, they, if it happens in, in Lake Superior, then all of a sudden Detroit loses power. We lose fresh water. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. With this collateral damage. Now, if this isn't depressing enough to think that we could be a target, it's really discouraging. I'm not saying we are. I'm just saying if you look at where a third of the world's water supply is, if it hit the Great Lakes, it would trickle down the Allegheny, it would trickle down the Ohio, go down the Mississippi. Cities like Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh would be greatly impacted. Tremendous loss of life. So when you look at these, no wonder there is silence for a half an hour. Because of the judgment that they just saw, and they knew that the trumpet judgments would intensify over the sealed judgments. So then, before the angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the earth was... And a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and they became dark. And a third of the day was dark, and also one third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle. We'll get to the eagle in just a second. One third of the sun became dark. So I got to thinking, what would happen if one third of the sun goes dark? Do you know people actually write about this stuff? I mean, scientists who got, you know, letters after their names. I mean, the people who, who think this thing through. And it, it's incredible. If we lose a third of the sun's daylight, forget the, sun, the moon, because that would affect the, the tides, the high tides and the low tides. But the high tides and low tides have already been affected by the mountain that fell into the sea, it's been affected by the star that fell into the fresh water, especially if it landed in the polar ice caps. You talk about rising ocean or rising sea levels. But if you just look at this one alone, if the earth becomes dark, then our temperatures on planet earth would drop drastically. At least a third Science, I don't know how they combine, but up to a half. Many rivers and lakes would begin to freeze over. The earth would, would lose the heat because there's more night now than there is day, seven hours a day and, and uh, 
whatever the other 14 hours of, no, 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 whatever the 17 hours of night, I can do math. But here's the thing. What happens is that the earth grows cold. Heat's not retained. And then photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is, is a light-induced process in plants where they take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and exchange it for oxygen through the process of photosynthesis. The catalyst for that is light. Well, remember the first trumpet burned up a third of the vegetation. Boy, that threw the, the oxygen-carbon dioxide exchange rate ratio out of kilter. Now you have dust in the atmosphere from the, from the volcano being hurled into the sea. you got more dust from the star falling into the oceans if all of this is, is literal. Then, then you come to this one and all of a sudden the earth gets more frigid. The earth gets more cold. There's little water. And now people who have, are asthmatic and have breathing issues, they are greatly challenged. And more people die. Please do not think that in judgment one, two, and three, when the trumpets blow, that people do not die. In every one of them, there are collateral damage. He points the fact out that it is upon nature, and the indirect effect is that men and women, boys and girls, grandmamas and grandpapas, they die. And this is called the wrath of God. Now, there's a difference between persecution of the church... And the wrath of God. Persecution is brought about by evil men or evil folks on good people in the church who stand up for faith. That's persecution. The wrath of God is God's judgment against the world for not believing in his son, Jesus Christ. And so you come to the fourth judgment, the fourth trumpet judgment. And it is, man, there is nothing to sing about here. There's nothing to joy in here. This is, this is horrendous. And then you come to the fifth judgment. But before you get to the fifth judgment, an eagle sounds. And I heard a single eagle crying loudly as, I, as it flew in the air. And here's what the eagle screeching said. Terror and terror and terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. And like, could it get any worse? A third of the ocean light, boom, gone. A third of the fresh water, boom, gone. A third of the, the light from the sun, moon, gone. Third of the vegetation gone. Could it get any worse? In Jewish culture of that day, and even going back farther than John, it goes back to the Old Testament, a screeching eagle overhead was always a sign of a bad omen. It was really kind of like superstition, kind of like stepping on a crack and something bad's going to happen, you know? And so when this eagle flew over, it was a... All the Jewish readers... And the people of that culture that day clearly understood it, that this is a very bad, bad thing for the eagle to fly over and be screeching. And what happens? It's a bad omen, and what's to follow is even worse than what we've seen. 
And I would imagine terror just gripped their heart. So the fifth angel blew his trumpet. Chapter 1 of verse, or chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to the earth from the sky. Now, we've kind of seen stars already that have fallen from the skies. In the seal judgments, there's been a third of the stars fall to the sky. And, and in verse, uh, the first trumpet judgment, kind of led to believe it, it might be a star. And then the, the third judgment, kind of led to believe it might be a meteorite that comes to the fresh water. But this star is not that kind of star. How do you know? Because look at the next line. And he... He refers, it's the antecedent, refers to the star. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He, he was given the key by who we don't know, presumably God, maybe the lamp. He was given a key to open up the bottomless pit. Depending on what version you have in a Bible, it's either a chasm, subterranean chasm. It would be an abyss, a bottomless pit, a deep, deep ravine. The idea is that what is about to be loosed and unlocked has been kept there for a certain time and certain day. Look at verse 2. Then he opened it. The smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace. And the sunlight and the air turned dark from the smoke. And by the way, you got all of this stuff now filling the atmosphere. Dust and, and dirt and debris and fire and smoke. Then locusts. Locusts came. And they were given the power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or the plant or the trees. And that would be what remained. But only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them but to torture them for five months. Why five months? That's the typical lifespan of a locust. With pain like the pain of a scorpion sing. And in those days people will seek death but will not find it. And they will long to die but death will flee from them. Let's unpack this just a little bit. When the fifth trumpet sounds, John describes an army of locusts that rose from the earth and descended back to it again. In verses 7 through 9, we're told that these guys, these locusts look like horses armed for battle, wore gold crowns on their head, had human faces, had locust body, had long hair, maybe with hairy bodies. They had teeth like a lion, wore armor of an iron. They had the sound and their sounds when they were all flying and going about together sounded like a deafening roar. And they had tails that sung like scorpions so that they could torture people for five months. Now, I'm telling you, I love preaching about a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of love. I'm just telling you up front, this text challenges, if I take it literally, my basic premise that God is loving, he is holy, and he's full of grace. Because here, it seems that God gives the key to an evil being who unlocks an evil army, so they torture people for five months. And the purpose is, 
You can see it in the last verse, in verse 6. The purpose is so that by the time this is over, people would prefer death to life. They would be so tormented by these locusts that the best option of life, or the best option for them is not life, but is just to die and get it over with. Utter hopelessness. I am telling you, these are hard passages to read. If you are a premillennialist, and that's fine if you are, you really have to work through this text with great care. Because you would take it more literal than an amillennialist would. An amillennialist just, just has a different... Not, you, you can't necessarily prove this one's right and this one's wrong or this one's right and this one's wrong. I, I'm just simply selling. This one looks at Revelation more symbolically with um, apocalyptic symbolic as apocalyptic symbolic literature and it, the premillennialist looks at it more literally. And if you look at it more literally, you've got to just kind of, how does that all mesh with your view of God? I know he's holy. I know there's justice coming. I know judgment is coming. I know there's an eternal hell for those who do not choose to believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in all of that. And I believe there's judgment. I believe there's persecution wrapped up in these verses. I believe this is a horrible time to be on the face of the earth. Irregardless if you believe this or you believe this, this time, the fifth trumpet, this persecution is a horrible time. And there's no grace in those verses. And the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle and looked like gold crowns and we went through all of that. Look at verse 10. They had tails that sung like scorpions, and for five months they had power to torment people. And their king, look at their king. And their king is the angel from the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In the Greek, it's Apollon, the destroyer. Clearly, it's a reference, I think, to, to Satan. By the way, I think it's also a dig at Caesar. And you know, Caesar is like the term we use for president. There was Nero, who was Caesar, and Tiberius, who was Caesar, and Caesar Augustus, who was Caesar, and it's like President Roosevelt, and President Ford, and President Obama. We use the same title, Caesar, just like we would use the same title uh, for president. And so what the Caesars said, and what the Caesars believed, is that they were the sons of God. Now, they believed that they were the sons, the offspring of Zeus because of their inclination towards emperor worship. And Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, is the son of Zeus, the son of their god. Could it be John just wanted to make a little dig right there and say, you can have your Apollo, but we have the risen lamb. I don't know. I'm just saying that if I had just got through with the, the fifth trumpet, I'd be wanting to take a shot at somebody. 
If we lose to Michigan, I'm going to be sick that day. I ain't coming. Brother Gerard will speak that day. But boy, if we win, I'm going to find the cutest little ways. Just go dig in there. John maybe just found a little way to get that in. Then there's the sixth seal. The sixth seal, the trumpet blew. And he said, I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the gold altar that stands in the presence of God. Now, by the way, notice when you read the book of Revelation, you've got to figure out where you're at. The first four trumpets, they blew. We were on the earth. The, the fifth trumpet blew. You, you seem to be on the earth, but your perspective is a little different. And then when the sixth trumpet blows, you you're seem to be in heaven or in an area that resembles the Old Testament tabernacle or temple with the altar and the four horns, which was representative of the Ark of the Covenant that stands before the presence of the God. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And again, we see these angels coming out of the, out of the earth. And the four angels who had been prepared for this hour, day, month, and year, were turned loose to kill one-third of all the people on the earth. That's their purpose. Not water, not vegetation, not marine life in the ocean or marine life in the Great Lakes, not the sun, the moon, the stars, the day or the night. The target is clearly people. An army of 200 million you got to either say, is that a literal 200 million? Or is that just saying this is a huge, huge, huge army? you got to decide. And in my vision, I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. Now, let, let me just kind of describe. The riders wore colorful armor, and you can just kind of read verse 17. Fiery red, blue sky, and yellow. The horses had a head like lion. Fire and smoke and sulfur billowed out from their mouths, and the tails that they had uh, had the heads of snakes on them. I hate snakes. I can't think of any more thing grotesque. I have had I have had literally dreams about this critter because I hate snakes that much. And so, at the ends of the tails of the horse were snake heads. Certainly to strike fear, but that would injure people. And we're told that a third of the people, and it would be a third of the remaining people. People had died through the seven seal or the six seal judgments. People had died either directly or indirectly from the first trumpet, the second, the third, the fourth, and the fifth trumpet. Now, with 200 million or this huge, vastly huge army, they go out to kill a third of the earth. And they were killed by three plagues, by fire, by smoke, smoke inhalation, and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horse. And their power was in their mouths and in their tails, for the head, tails had heads like snakes with power to injure people. But the people who did not die in these plagues, let me hang on to verse 20 for just a second. We're told a third of the people die. So now they have seen 12 judgments of God. These people. These people. 
So you start off with a number and the first seal judgment comes and people die and that number gets smaller and they see it. The second judgment comes and, and, and people die and the number and the population of the world gets smaller and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. And with each judgment, the world gets ever smaller and ever smaller in its total population. So now a third of what's ever left after the fifth judgment is killed and probably the saddest verse that probably tells you the true heart of end time people is verse 20 and 21. He says, but the people who did not die in these plagues, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, refuse to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. What were their evil deeds? You, you can kind of read, they worshipped demons, they worshipped idols, they, they uh, did not repent of their murders, or they didn't repent of witchcraft, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Can you think of anything more hardened than a person who says, I will, God, I will not relent. They're so engrossed in their own worldview, or their own position, or whatever, that, that I, I can't imagine to go through six judgments, each one increasing in intensity and in frequency. Each one seeming to be more severe than the previous one before it. And yet, the hardness of their heart. They say, I will not repent. That is absolutely incredible to me. That's why I say this is one of the most depressing passages, I think, that you'll find in the Bible. Because God is doing all of these things to bring people unto themselves. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 2, that he brings blessing to bring us to him. He says, by the goodness of God, many are called to repentance. Now in the book of Revelation, he uses tribulation to call people to repentance. And it seems as if the world, whether it's blessing or trouble will not repent. You know that to be a reality. You work with people, you got people in your family, you got friends who are just messed up, whether it's drugs or alcohol, whether it's, whether it's their marriage, whether they're kids, whether uh, all kinds of different things that are out there today just to mess up their life. And it just seems like they go from one bad decision, from one trouble to the next trouble, and the next trouble, and the next trouble. And, and we just look at them and say, listen, there's hope, there's grace, there's mercy, there's a way out. And they will not repent. I've had people in my office this year, last year, the previous years, just sharing faith with them and talking with them about where they're at in life. And I said, listen, the way to a fresh start, the way to forgiveness is through repentance and accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Will you do that? Can you do that? And they say, I will not. How many of you were switched as a child? You know that phrase? God bless you. We are a rare fraternity. I'm telling you. The ultimate insult was when you had to go pick your own switch. But that's a different story. I'm telling you, it didn't take long for me to be sorry for what I did and to change my attitude and change my behavior. Because I know if I didn't, another whip of the switch was coming. 
And I know if I didn't, I know another whip of the switch was coming. And these people had just been through 12 whips of the switch. And they didn't repent. I can't imagine anything more horrendous or horrible than what we just read. And they will not repent. And the sad thing is, is that there's six, seven more judgments to come in the bowl or the vile judgments. Did anybody see a hint of grace in the passage that we read? Anybody see it anywhere? I think if you were going to maybe stretch it a bit and see any hint of grace, I think it would be the fact that it was always a third and not the entire earth. It was a third of the vegetation and a third of the people and a third of the ocean. And it wasn't the entire ocean. It wasn't the entire water system. It wasn't the entire ecosystem. It was just a third. And I think that is just simply God's way of using that number, one-third, symbolically to say even in times where God's wrath is poured out on an unbelieving world, there is still grace for folks who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So, you need to decide, because this is a heavy, heavy, heavy four chapters. Next week we'll look at chapters 10 and 11, which is really an assertion between the sixth and the seventh trumpet blowing. And you'll need to decide if this is literal language or if it's symbolic. Could it be? Just could it be that John was referencing literal events in his day that made sense to his audience and the people who would read this in Ephesus and Smyrna and Sardis and, and Pergamon and Laodicea and Thyatira? Would it, is it possible that it would make sense to them? They would understand the imagery. They would understand the, the, and the literal implications of that imagery and of that scene and of that setting and of those numbers. And then, could it be that we now have a message from John that we can look principles out of for the church for all generations that have existed from the time of Corey Tim Boone and the Holocaust to the time of, of tremendous persecution in the second and into the third century until Constantine made Christianity the state religion of Rome and persecution stopped. Could it be that this horrendous language and this horrendous scene that has just a, a small hint of grace lets us know that tribulation and God's wrath is going to be poured out. Nature is just going to go crazy. It, it dawned on me today as I was kind of trying to think this thing through. If anybody in this world ought to believe in climate change, it ought to be the Christians because before everything is said and done, the climate of this place will change. You can't have the six trumpet judgments I just read to you and it not affect the climate globally on a global scale. I'm not talking about the political correctness of global warming and climate change today. I am just strictly talking from a 
tribulation and judgment and wrath is going to come. The message is that the closer we get to Jesus' return, the more out of control nature becomes and the more in turn persecution will be. Now, and, and John's message is don't give up. Don't give up. Every church leader in John's day was dead except for him and Thomas was probably in India. Like Antipas and Pergamum, all of the pastors and the churches, most of them had been killed and the leadership kind of stripped from their churches and the church was barely 30, 40 years old. This was an incredibly tender time for the fledgling church of Jesus Christ. And John's message is simply this, don't give up. No matter how bad it looks around you, God's wrath is directed at the unsaved. And yeah, you may, you may endure troubles and trials in this life, but I'll know this, that at the end of the day, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. Amen? The lamb that was slain comes back on his horse and defeats the unbelieving of this world. So that what is written in Philippians comes to pass, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is king of kings and he's lord of lords, ruling, reigning, providing grace for his people. Can we pray together?